0: We're starting Genesis. So I've got chapter one to do. Uh, When I taught Genesis many years ago, I did four messages on chapter one. So that means I'm not gonna cover everything. And that's okay. Hopefully it gives you enough that you want to look more into it. And my hope in Genesis is this, to make us in awe of this book. And what I've noticed is this, the older we get, the less we're in awe of things, right? So as a family, we were down in San Diego about a month and a half ago, and we went to the San Diego Zoo. So I'm 51 and my youngest is nine. Guess who had the most awe at the San Diego Zoo? No, Myron, because he's nine. Everything's amazing to him, right? Like running, here's what's crazy. We have a bunch of chickens at home. They have chickens at the San Diego Zoo. Guess what Myron wanted to go check out over and over? He's like, dad, they got chickens. Come here. Look at the chickens. Chickens. I'm like, there's a tiger over here. Yeah, but the chickens, dad. (laughs) He's just in awe of everything. Look at this. Look at this. Chickens. Now, if I took my wife to the zoo, And I was like, honey, look at the chickens. Isn't this a great anniversary for us? (laughs) She'd be like, no. Because you start to lose awe the older you get. I want us to regain an awe, especially of the book of Genesis. And here's how I think you get it. You need to read Genesis as one of the original audience. Genesis was not written to you and me. Do you know that? It was written to two groups of people by Moses. The first group of people were the parents who had been mud, brick, baking slaves to a tyrant named Pharaoh who treated them like dirt, killed their babies, and forced them into slavery for 400 years. So that's the first audience. And there's a lot that God is saying to them, and we'll see parts of that right here. The second group are their children who are going to decide, do we trust God to bring us into the promised land? Is God the kind of God that we want to serve and to obey and to follow? So they're trying to learn about the character of God. So it's these two audiences. So if we can check out of our 21st century scientific kind of mind and put yourself in the place of a freed slave or a child of a freed slave, man, you get a lot more from this book. You get some awe of it once again. So here's how the book breaks down. It's just two sections. Chapter one through chapter 11. It's just called general history. It's all nations, there's two times, chapter five and chapter 10, which just goes over all these people groups, all these names. And there's four massive events in these 11 chapters that echo throughout the Bible. And if you know these four, you get the first section. They are creation, flood, excuse me, creation, fall, flood, and the Tower of Babel. Those four are gonna come up time and time again throughout scripture. If you know those four events, you know the first section of the book of Genesis. From chapter 12 through chapter 50 is a special history and you just could call it the seed. In Genesis 3.15, God promises, good news, Adam and Eve, there's coming a promised seed who's gonna crush the serpent's head. That seed goes underground, if you would, for millennia, and then pops out in Genesis 12 when God makes a promise to Abraham, you're gonna have a kid, and in your family, all the nations of earth will be blessed. It starts to sprout in chapter 12. It's the seed. And in chapters 12 through 50, there are four men, nice, four events, four men that you gotta remember. If you get these four men, you know the last part of Genesis. The four men are Abraham, Isaac, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And those four guys are the majority of what we're gonna study from chapters 12 through chapter 50. So it's brilliant, a lot to do. Let's jump in. Genesis chapter one, verse one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Here's how I see Genesis 1. It may be different from the way that you see Genesis 1 and I'm okay with that. I think there are about four or five ways you can look at Genesis 1 and still be within Christian orthodoxy, here's how I see it. Here's what makes the most sense to me. In verse one, God creates everything in that verse. It's all there. We do not have a date for God deciding to create. We do not not know why God decided, decided to create, but God, the all existing one, at some point decides I'm going to create everything. And in verse one, he creates everything. And the big message that echoes from Genesis one throughout the rest of the Bible is simply this, God is the creator. The rest of scripture is not so concerned about how God creates. We're really concerned about that. Was it one day, you know, seven days in a row, six days in a row. Was it day age? Was it evolution? Was it deistic evolution? Was it, right? Was it all these kind of old creation? Was it young earth creation? We get all divided up on how, but really Genesis, the way God creates, verses three on down, isn't repeated. What's repeated over and over is God saying, I am the creator, period. It's much more who and less how. And this is so different from ancient creation texts. Usually it's like two gods get into a fight and one God plunders the other God and the heart falls over here and becomes a massive mountain and the guts spill out here, they become rivers and the blood spills over here and becomes the Red Sea, right? There's just these crazy, you're like, what in the world? This is an amazing record. It's brilliant. And it says the heavens and the earth that term, heavens and earth, they actually kind of become one and they're repeated over and over and over again. And they mean this together. When you see them, heavens and earth, they mean this, everything that's been created, the entirety of the universe. You can look at Jeremiah 10 verse 11. It's the entirety of the universe, the heavens and the earth. You can look at Isaiah 44, 24. It is the entirety of the universe in this word, heaven and earth. You have to keep them together though, right? You can't take them apart or they lose their meaning. It's like rap sheet. If you took rap sheet apart, what happens? Well, rap is like a music and sheet, it's like something you put on your bed, right? So what's rap sheet then? Well, is it music you listen to when you make it in your bed? No, a rap sheet is an account of how horrible I've been through my life. Very different. So you can't separate them Together they mean something very unique. It's the entirety of the universe, everything. So it's possible that there is a pre-atomic world that you see right here in verses one and two. It's possible in this pre-atomic world that there are dinosaurs and there are fish. Now I'm making conjecture here. Nobody knows for sure, but it's very possible. That there's all this stuff that happens Pre, and I'll try to explain why I believe this, pre-Adamic, there could be entirety of creation happening. The sun, I believe, is there. The moon is there. Everything has been created. I'll try to get to that in a while. So there's this whole thing that's happened already before we get to Eden and the creation of Eden. And the key in this is this word, God created. It's the Hebrew word, bara. It's a very unique Hebrew word. It means this, to create from nothing. It's not, God had something and manipulated it. It is, there was nothing in the beginning. God created everything, bara. Now, if you know science, up until 1970, no one believed this. Everyone believed in what was called the steady state universe. That things have just always been this way. There's always been stars and planets and suns and solars. It's just always been this way. There was no beginning to it. There's no end to it. Watch Carl Sagan in the 1960s talk about it. Hey, it's always just been here. It's always been this way, right? Now, what changed that? Why did everyone now believe in a Big Bang? Two things. The Hubble telescope. It started looking at these stars and the stars had what's called a red shift. You know what that means? It means they're moving away from us and stretching light so it looks redder than it's supposed to because the stars are literally moving away from us. The world's being, the universe is spreading out. And it's everywhere you look, the universe is spreading out. And if you bring all those lines and come together, they come together to a point. So then it's pretty obvious that sometime that whole thing was all together. And there was a second discovery. It's called background radiation. It is the calling card of a big bang, that things had a beginning. And it was discovered in the 1960s with these guys, they worked for the Bell Company, and they had this antenna and they were trying to transmit information. And they kept getting this this background fuzz on their instruments. And they thought it was pigeon poop, literally on the antenna. And they kept trying to clean it off, but it was always there, it would not go away. And finally they realized they they got a Nobel prize for it. They discovered background radiation. There was such adamant, in the evolutionary side, adamant uh, opposition to this idea of a big bang. Listen to this guy, his name is Sir John Maddox, writing in the early 1970s. Editor of Nature Magazine, big time atheist. This is what he said, and I quote, we must not allow a big bang. It gives too much strength to the creationists and to the Bible. They knew well, wow, there's a big bang, it really makes Genesis 1.1 seem like reality. That's the truth, right? God, in the beginning, bara out of nothing, created everything. Amazing. It reminds me of these two guys, Harry, Henry Beecher, great preacher from 100 years ago. And he was best friends with this guy named Robert Ingersoll. Anyone in like the trades? Ingersoll, they make all kinds of equipment, right? He's the guy that starts them. So these two guys were good friends. One's a preacher. Robert Ingersoll was an atheist, Darwinist, evolutionist, and they'd have these great talks. And I love that, it's great. So Henry Beecher at one time, the preacher, is at his desk and someone had given them this beautiful globe. It was like gold and it had topography on it, just amazing globe. It's sitting there on his desk. And Robert Ingersoll, the atheist comes in, sees the globe, he's like, whoa. That's the most amazing thing I've ever seen. And he's checking it out. He's like, wow, who made this? Where did it come from? And Henry Beecher, the preacher, said, it didn't, just one morning appeared there. <laughs> and Robert Ingersoll said, ah. Doesn't happen that way, does it? Either there's a mind or there was matter. One of them has to exist throughout eternity. The Bible says it's a mind. Scientists saying matter did not exist throughout eternity. It had a beginning. It leads to one thing. In the beginning, God created. The other thing I want you to know: listen to how your Bible begins in the beginning. Listen to how your Bible ends. Revelation 22. In the beginning, and they will reign forever and ever. In the beginning, and they lived happily ever after. What is this thing God has given to us? It's an epic narrative. It's a story, right? In the beginning, and they lived happily ever after. It's an epic narrative. Here's what we do to the Bible. We put it in a blender and we go, And then we take little bits and we try to put all the bits back together. If God wanted us to have like a little like systematic theology, he would have given us a systematic theology book. What did God give us? A story, a brilliant, true story of how God works with his people. You know why he did that? Because we remember stories. God knows how we work. We don't remember facts like chemistry and stuff. We remember great stories. And this is the greatest story ever told. In the beginning and they lived happily ever after. It's so brilliant. And there's a word in verse two that you gotta get. There it separates, no longer heavens and earth, now it's just the earth. When I say the word earth, what image comes to your mind right away? A blue planet, right, hanging out there. That's not this word. There's a Hebrew word for planet, it's tabel. This is the word ha-audits, a very important word to know. The ha-audits. It is mostly used in the Bible, Old Testament, for the promised land. The ha-audits, the promised land that God has for his people. And here's what the Bible is saying about the ha-audits in verse two. It says it's without form, it's void, and it's dark. What it's saying in that is this, The land, the ha-audits, is raw. It's uninhabitable. It's not fit for humans to live on. It's a dangerous place. It's like Riverside Park. You can't live there anymore, right? That's what it's saying. (laughs) Look out, it's dangerous. So what's going to happen is this. God is going to take care of the darkness the formlessness and the void. That's what he's going to do. He's going to illuminate it. He's going to form it day one, two, and three. And he's going to fill it days four, five, and six. That God is going to take care of how uninhabitable the land is. He's going to make it into a land that is good and fit for humans. That the rest of this chapter is God saying, I'm going to make a great place for humans to live. Do you know that is God's heart for us all the time? God does it again for his people. It's called the promised land. God says it's a good land. It flows with milk and honey. You don't have to pump the water up like you did in Egypt and work hard to irrigate. The rain's gonna come down, the latter rains and the former rains and stuff's just gonna sprout out of the ground. It's a good land. Then what does Jesus say to his disciples in John 14? Don't let your heart be troubled you believe in God, believe also in me because in my father's house are many mansions and I'm going to prepare a place for you. God's heart for his people has always been, I want a really great place for you humans to flourish and that's the rest of this chapter. It's brilliant. So let's check it out. And I'm gonna have to speed. So there you have it. It's gonna be a lot of Genesis for me is, I don't have time. Verse three, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. In order to have day and night, what do you need? Gotta have a sun. That's why I believe, verse one, sun's already there. Okay, then what is happening right here? What's happening? I believe in verse three, the light finally penetrates down to the Ha audits. It makes it to the land. Something was blocking it. What could it have been? Well, I get into conjecture here. Maybe there was dust in the atmosphere. Maybe an asteroid hit and it's dark everywhere. Maybe volcanoes had gone off and it was dark everywhere. Maybe the planet didn't rotate yet and that side of the planet was dark. I don't know. There's a million things that could have been it. I just believe at this point, God says, the light now is going to make it down to the Ha audits. And God separates out day and night. There's a lot of separating this chapter. Day is separated from night. Land is separated from sea. Male is separated from female right? Over and over, God is separating. Heaven is separated from earth. And every time God makes a separation, and you can do your own study on this, it is always for my blessing. Do you know you need the night? Do you know that? You can tell your age on how much you love sleep. Do you know that? Like my nine-year-old, I have to trick him to go into bed. Come upstairs. Hey, why don't we go in your bed? Hey, look how great your bed is. Oh, I don't read a book? Why don't we turn off the light, right? Try to trick him. You don't have to trick me to go to sleep, if you say you can go to sleep, like, thank you. Oh, praise the Lord, I'll go to sleep. But at night, you know what your brain does? It takes the chaos of your day and it organizes it and makes sense of it throughout the night. That's why if you started any kind of new activity, pickleball or ping pong or a new job, what happens the first night? Don't you have all these dreams of playing pickleball? It's your brain then trying to make sense of what you just did that day so you can do better at it the next day. And good sleep causes great chaos organizing. When you don't sleep well, you actually don't organize the chaos right. So God here is saying, night is a gift to my people. The ha audits, in order for the humans to flourish, they need night. And over and over, this is biblical theology. It is God alone that brings light to darkness. So I'll read you a couple of verses. Isaiah 9, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them light has shone." And Matthew picks that up and he says, "You know who that is?" Matthew 4 verse 16. "The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And you look at 1 Corinthians 4 over and over. We just studied that. When you see light coming into darkness, it is always an act of God turning on the light. That if you right now feel like, man, I'm in darkness, there's only one that can turn on the light. And here's the best news. In Revelation 21, 23, it says this, in eternity, there is no more night that the light gets turned on for eternity. We're no longer in darkness. We're no longer seeing through a glass dimly anymore. Now it's light on. We see and we know it's brilliant. So that's day one. Day two. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse and it was so and god called the heavens ex- heavens god called the expanse heaven and there was evening and there was morning on the second day now you have this expanse if you've looked at this word there's all kinds of conjecture on what the expanse is is it a dome Some people think, they believe that there was this iron dome over the earth and like there was holes poked in it and that way you would see light that was from the stars. Other people say, no, it's this vapor canopy that surrounded the earth pre kind of flood times. And there's some kind of validity to that. Like there's crazy stuff. Have you read about the woolly mammoths in Siberia? Frozen solid, with jungle vegetation in their mouth. Now there's a couple just crazy things about that. Siberia, warm or cold, very cold. Jungle plants up there, Mm mm-mm. So somehow these woolly mammoths way up there are eating jungle vegetation. But the second crazy thing is this. They are frozen so fast, they can't swallow it. What in the world happened, right? Something happened. Is it the flood? I don't know. Something incredible happened. Is it the vapor canopy disappearing? I don't know, but something happens that changes the earth the way it is. Here's what I believe. There's this Bible called the Net Bible. It's online. It is a brilliant study tool. If you love the text itself, it's not gonna give you commentary. All it's gonna tell you is little notes about interesting words. This word, so when it looks at this word, the expanse, here's what it says. The expanse is the air pressure between the land and the clouds. That's what I think it is. It's that part, it's that expanse right there. The point God is making to slaves, the original audience is this. I alone control the waters. Notice how many times water appears in this verse. Water, 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 water. What is God saying? I control where water goes. Now, why would that matter? Because they were headed into a promised land. And in the promised land, there was this God named Baal. And according to the people that worship Baal, Baal alone controlled the waters. It's why if you know the story of Elijah going up onto Mount Carmel, he faces off with 450 prophets of Baal, and it hasn't rained for three and a half years. That's a problem. And you know the story. You guys make yours, I'll make mine, make an altar and you pray to your God and see if fire comes out and consumes it. They do their thing all day long, they cut themselves, they're bleeding everywhere, they can't do it. Elijah prays a prayer of 38 words and fire comes down, burns the sacrifice, burns the rocks, burns the water that he had soaked it with. And then what does Elijah do? He goes and he prays, seven times he prays. Each time he asks his servant, do you see a cloud? No, do you see a cloud? On the seventh time, Elijah's servant said, I see a tiny cloud out there, the size of a man's fist. And Elijah just goes, run, it's going to rain. And it rains like never before because God controls the water. God has control of the weather. And God is making things just right so humans can flourish. Do you know how delicate our atmosphere is? Just the oxygen. If the oxygen went up just a little bit, You know what happened to us? You ever seen a tanker pulling oxygen? What's on the back of it? Danger, flammable. Oxygen is very flammable. So if it was just a little bit higher, man, everything just burns up. A little bit lower, we don't exist anymore. It's just this perfect amount. Other planets have very different atmospheres. They sent a probe into Saturn. They found Saturn is uh, atmosphere of methane and carbon. And guess what happens when it rains on Saturn? You know what happens? It doesn't rain water. You know what rains? Diamonds. Yes, diamonds. Now you might think, that would be awesome. No, it wouldn't. You'd trade all those diamonds for a cup of water because water does a lot more for you. You want to invest in something? Invest in water. Because without water, nothing exists. And God says, I'm in control of it. That life-giving substance, I control it. It's mine. Day two. Day three. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants, yielding seed and fruits, and fruit trees bearing fruit in their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so, and the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds and trees bearing fruit in which there is seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning the third day. So now you have kind of this land coming out, right? Oh, wait a second. I skipped the verse, verse nine. I'll go back. And let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear and it was so, and God called the dry land, the earth, and the waters that were gathered together, he called the seas, and God saw that it was good. And then all the trees come out. So two things here, quickly. Land comes out. Do you know how important the balance of land is to water? So scientists have studied this. If there was too much land, the, the oceans are the air conditioners of our planet. Because it talks, takes a lot of the sun to evaporate water and then to bring it up and bri- bring just all the power it takes to boil water essentially and then move it and then rain it down. It keeps our planet cool. And if there's too much, just a little bit more land, you know what happens? All the air ends up evaporating the water and the whole thing just goes barren desert. You know that the amount of salt water versus fresh water is super important. If there's too much, Fresh water, here's what happens. Salt water freezes at a much lower temperature than fresh water. So if it was all fresh water, if there's no salt in the seas, what would happen is in the polar caps, they would just build up and build up and build up with water until there was no water left in between. And there'd be like these barren deserts and then ice on the top and bottom. Like these are things we just take for granted. But man, we live in Goldilocks zone. That God has just formed it just right so humans can flourish, all of it. And by the way, oceans, who hates the beach? Who is there? I hate the beach. No one, because they're beautiful and brilliant and they're a gift from God so that we live in a good place where we can flourish. But seas have this funny thing in the Bible. Maybe you've seen this before. When the people are freed from Egypt and they're running away and they're trying to get away, what hinders them where they almost die? the Red Sea, right? And God has to actually part the Red Sea so they can get across. In Daniel chapter seven, there's these really beastly governments and they come out of the sea and they stomp and demolish God's people. Seas in the Bible are almost always places that hinder humans from flourishing. And that makes sense because you get to the book of Revelation and you hear about the new heavens and new earth and new Jerusalem. And what does it say about that place? There's no sea. Now it's not saying that that spot is saying, there's nothing that's gonna stand in the way of your flourishing. You ever feel like, man, I've got more potential to me. I could do more, but just feels like life is, the curse is keeping you from all your potential. In heaven, that's taken away. There's nothing to hinder what you're able to do and your flourishing and your abilities. That's why the Bible says in heaven, there's no sea. It's brilliant. And all these trees sprout up and all these fruits are out there. Aren't you glad for fruit? Do you know how many varieties of apples there are? There's better apples than a red delicious, which are the worst apples ever. They're red deceivers, right? They got skin like leather and then they're mush on the inside. There are 7,500 different varieties of apples. You could eat a different apple every day and it would take you 20 years to just sample every single apple. What a gift God has given to us. That's just apples. And here's what we know from Genesis 1. In the beginning, everybody was vegan. PETA gets a W right here, right? Chapter nine, liver king gets a W right? But right now, it's everybody's eating. Everybody's eating. I think animals included, they're all vegan. And the prophet Isaiah says this, there's coming the renewed world where the lion will eat straw like an ox. It appears that potentially we're going back to that kind of a world. So if you love meat, now's your time to eat up. It may not happen in heaven. I don't know, but maybe not. It's a whole different world right now before the fall. The fall fractures things in ways that we're still trying to figure out, right? So that's day three. Now day four. Now we get to the filling part. We formed it, one through three, taking care of the formless part of verse two, taking care of the illumination of verse two. Now the void part. And God said, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. Huh? Seems like God's making the sun moon right here, Matt. What's going on? Now remember, one, two, three, form. Four, five, six, he fills. We know verse three, there's light. We know verse three, there's day and night. So in my simple understanding, if I was a mud brick baking slave, I'm gonna say verse three, there's gotta be sun. I still agree with that. I think there's gotta be sun. So in verses 14 through 19, here's what I say. God is giving function to the lights. He says, let them be for a sign. I'm making them to become signs. They're doing a function here. And the key is in verse 16, it says this, and God made the two great lights. In verse one, God creates. It's the Hebrew word bara. It's, it's the, the term theologians throw around is this, ex nihilo. It means literally from nothing. That's what bar means, ex nilo, from nothing God creates. This word made in verse 16 is a different Hebrew word. It's a saw. It's like this. It's if I had a big pile of sheets and a mattress and just they're all cluttered together. And I took all that and I put them together and I made a bed. What am I doing? I'm taking the chaos of existing stuff and I'm ordering it and giving it a new function so I can rest on it. That's this word. That's what it literally means. To take something that already exists and to order it so, be, so it becomes something so it has a function and a purpose. And what's the function and purpose? Well, God gives it to us. He wants them to be for a sign, for seasons, for days, and for years. The sun and moon and the, the rotation of the earth and, and all these things give us, right, 30 days in a month, 365 days in a year. They give us all these signs. Now, do animals care about time? It's not for the animals, is it? They care less. No animals is like, man, my biological clock is ticking. Man, right? But humans, we really care about time. If you see a new parent with a brand new baby, what do you have to say to them as an old parent? Look out. Time flies. Right now, they're asking for a, Whatever a binky, you'll blink your eyes and they're gonna be asking for your keys and your car and your credit card and your social security number. It's coming for you. We have to say it because we are derived by this time. It's in us, times and seasons. So their purpose is to help humans know about time. Now, why does it matter? Well, because time matters. Moses would pray, establish the works of our hands. The Bible says, redeem the time. There's tons of verses about, man, use your time wisely. You're given this, use your time wisely, invest it well. Use the talent of time well. So it's for us, it's for seasons, right? That's what it is. And then notice, it never calls them the sun and never calls them the moon. What does it call it? Greater light and lesser light, why? Why? because the sun and the moon were names of gods that people worship, right? The Egyptian Pharaoh believed he was the descendant of the sun, Ra. God here is demonstrating something to his people by not even mentioning their names. He's saying, yeah, those aren't gods. He's stripping them of their divinity. That's what he's doing. They rule the heavens like that, but I rule over them. I created them, I gave them their function, their mind. I own them, don't worship them, never worship creation. Do we worship creation? Do we worship the stars? Astrology is the worship of stars, you know that? People ask me, man, is it okay to check my my sign? Is it okay to put it on my bio that I'm an Aquarius or whatever, or I'm a cancer? What a great sign, right? I'm a cancer, "Mm, no thanks. This is what I tell them. I say, why would you go to the stars when you can go to Jesus? As a believer, we don't go to the stars to look at what our life is gonna be. We get to go to the creator and sustainer, the one that's over all of them, the one that knows it all. We get to go to them. You know what that'd be like? It'd be like you coming to my house and then being at my house and then asking Myron, my nine-year-old, all these theological questions. Who should you be asking those questions of? My wife, she'll give you the practical answer. I'll go way esoteric. And you'll be like, that doesn't make any sense. Right? You ask the right person. Jesus is the right person. I don't go to the stars. I don't worship the sun and the moon. Are you kidding me? I can go directly to their creator. That's what's being said right here. Right? So then day five, and God said, let the water swarm, important word for me personally, with swarms of living creatures. The birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves and with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day it swarms. I think there's a great possibility there was already fish there. They just weren't swarming that God now has a mandate for them, be fruitful and multiply. Why? Because humans are gonna need you. So we need a whole bunch more of you. Get busy, get some swarming, go for it. That's what I think is happening right here. That this whole chapter is about one thing, God creating the hot audits to be a flourishing place for his humans. That's what the whole chapter is centered on. God's care for his image bearers. Now swarm, right? Anyone here like seafood? I do, I love it. Right here, here's why. Verse five, it's swarming now. You ever gone like to a place where there's a lot, a lot of fish and gone snorkeling, like in the ocean in Hawaii or wherever. I was in Vanuatu, Vanuatu was unbelievable. Like Hawaii was so disappointing compared to Vanuatu because there's nobody there. You just go and there's just fish everywhere and they're friendly, they just come up to you like, hey, you're like, you're dead. Because they don't realize it yet, there's not this pressure on them. Like it swarms of them, and then uh, and I dove for a little bit there. And what I noticed was the deeper you get, the uglier the creature creatures get. It's like this crazy thing. I was just talking yesterday. This is a total random thought, but uh, talking to my daughter about Australia, and we we're talking about kangaroos, and I said Australia is weird. It's like all the extra pieces God has. He's like, hmm. I'm gonna put them all down in Australia. I've got this, this, this crazy looking beaver and a duck. Platypus, there it goes, right? It's a nutty, I don't know why I said that, but it's swarming, right? It's just crazy. You're like, wow, these are amazing creatures. And then God brings out this one. And in our translation, it says, and we don't understand it, but it just says the great sea creatures. The Hebrew there is the tenonym. The tenonym was worshiped as a God. It was a creature that the people in Egypt and the surrounding nations, they worshiped the tenonym as a God. What is God saying? Not a God. I created it. I control it. I own it. It's mine. In fact, in the book of Job, which might predate Genesis, I think it does. I think it was actually written before the book of Genesis. Genesis is probably 1500 BC. I think Job is 2000 BC or before. So old book, when God speaks to Job about his greatness, what does he say? He talks about the Leviathan, right? This great sea creature. And what does God say about the Leviathan? I got him on a rope. I control him. It's God just saying, I have power over these things. We can't even control our chihuahuas. God's like the great sea creatures. I've got them, I'm in control of them. I alone can control creation. I rule over it, right? And then verse 24. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So just explosion of life here, okay? Same, same thing. And here are the key verses. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. bird of the heavens, and everything that creeps on the earth and everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so, and God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good, tove, tove. And there was the evening and there was the morning, the sixth day. Remember the audience, slaves to a megalomaniac named Pharaoh, Killed their babies, forced them to work hours and hours and hours and hours, treated them like dirt, thought he was a God. And what does God say to these slaves? You're my image bearers. You're my image bearers, right? This is the most important world-changing verse in the Bible. And when we talk about human rights, They didn't come from nowhere, they came from right here. That every human, no matter race, language, color, age, disability, ability, does not matter what they are, every human is an image bearer of God and worthy of dignity and respect. Male, female, black, white, handicapped, not handicapped, old, young, every human, it comes from right here. That might isn't right. Just because you have the power doesn't mean you can subjugate one of my image bearers. They all are worthy of respect. It's brilliant. The world changed because of this verse. And God gives a mandate to the image bearers, to you and me. And he says, number one, be fruitful. Great verse. Like sex is God's idea. It's a gift. Can be abused, no doubt, like every good gift can be. But man, it's a beautiful gift. He says, have dominion, rule over this world. Like I've given it to you, rule over it, it's yours. Take it, make stuff, make iPhones and Teslas and beautiful buildings, right? Like brilliant, all packed in creation, all this stuff to do what we do here on this planet, God put it into the ground for us to mine out and to use responsibly, no doubt, but brilliant. But then God uses this other word, he says, and subdue. Dominion is over creation. What's this subdue word? The Hebrew is essentially kabosh. Put the kabosh on something. That's this word right here. It's a war term. In the middle of Eden, God says war term. Was Eden paradise? We have that idea. Here's where the idea came from. When the Hebrew scriptures were translated into the Greek, the Septuagint is what it's called. The word used for Eden is called paradiseo. From where we get the word? Paradise. So we had this idea that Eden was paradise and it was perfect. Does the Bible ever say Eden was perfect? No. What does the Bible say? Eden was good. Good, 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 and very good. Is good different than perfect, right? You got a good grade, a B. You got a perfect grade, a 100%. Is that different? Yes. Why wasn't Eden perfect? There's a bad tree in it, and that tree will kill you. And number two, what else was in there? Shows up in chapter three, a serpent. A serpent that wants to steal and kill and destroy that we are under this idea that the world is a playground when the Bible screams from Genesis 1, our mandate all the way to Revelation chapter 20, it's a battleground. Even to this day, 1 John 5, 15, the whole world lays under the sway of the evil one. And when humans choose to play rather than fight, the biblical story is bad things happen. Bad things happen. So put on the full armor of God. That's what it says over and over. And our hope has always been this, Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. It's the cross, that on the cross, Satan is crushed. Well, time out, Matt. Why is there so much evil still in the world then? Here's why. If you know World War II, there's a turning point in battle. It's called the Battle of Normandy where finally the allied forces make it back into Europe and they push the Germans off the beaches of Normandy. Brutal war. Now, historians say at that point, Hitler had lost. Was the war over that day? No, 18 more months, some of the bloodiest, most brutal fighting as they pushed from Normandy all the way into Berlin. Listen, our Normandy was Calvary. That was the decisive battle but we're not in Berlin yet. And so we still have to fight. Romans 16, 20 says that God's gonna crush the serpent under the church's foot. We still fight. We still push back against darkness. And I think it's gonna get more brutal and more brutal, I believe, because we're getting really close to Berlin. And that's why it's getting really brutal because it's close to the end. And you gotta expect it. Man, no problem. We'll fight. Good, we'll fight. So two quick things, and I've got one minute to do them. Number one. God says it's good six times, why? Is it a moral good? Mm -mm. Is it God patting himself on the back, man, I'm so good? No, it's God enjoying his creation. I think we can get so caught up in how bad our world is, we forget about the good creation. We forget to just look out there and go, wow, it's good. Wow, I've got food. Wow, I've got a place to live. Wow, I'm in Eden, it's good. We gotta spend a lot more time like God, resting in the evening just saying, it's good. And number two, you gotta relax because God's in control. He controls the beasts, he controls the tenement, he controls the darkness, God is in control. And when we let his spirit hover over our own chaos, man, order comes out of it and beauty comes out of it and flourishing comes out of it. Relax, God is in control. It's not up to me to make the world work. God does it and he does a fine job of it. And I need to relax and enjoy what is good and trust him with the chaos in my life. And when it's dark in my life, I pray that he pierces it with his light. Jesus, thank you for Genesis chapter one. May it stir our hearts and our affections for you more. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys.